The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's Friday, August the 23rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Maureen Dowd is a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist whose weekly New York Times articles also appear in the Irish Times. Her combative takes on people and power inside the Washington, D.C. beltway rendered her persona non grata with the Clintons, and George W. Bush called her the Cobra. She is the undisputed queen of the Washington Commentariat, plying her trade in the spaces between politics and personality, and more often than not deciding that it's the personality that's more important in the end. I spoke to her in advance of her appearance at the Kennedy Summer School in September. Maureen Dead, you're very welcome to the Politics Podcast. Thank you, you. Um, I can't really start any conversation with you without turning to one man, obviously, and that man is uh, Donald J. Trump. Um, you wrote a recent column, which I found very powerful and very striking, comparing two photographs, uh, one of Donald Trump and one of his predecessor. Would you mind telling our listeners about that? Yes, there was a very famous photograph taken of Barack Obama when he was president, where a young black child asked if he could touch his hair to see if it was like his own. And Obama said, sure, go for it, dude. And it's a lovely photograph that kind of encapsulates the giddy optimism that we had in 2008, that we were moving past racial divisions in this country, and that President Obama represented all these remarkable things that were going to bring us into modernity and get us past the past. Uh, Although, isn't it the Irish who always say the past is never the past? And that certainly turned out to be true here because a lot of these uh, good feelings dissipated into a lot of hate and racial division, which was encapsulated in a photo that President Trump took with... um, Uh, a baby that had survived the El Paso shooting in the hospital because his parents shielded him and they both died doing so. And it was, it was 
totemic because uh, a lot of people got upset that uh, President Trump, who seems to, you know, is very short on empathy, was grinning and giving a thumbs up and Melania was holding the baby and the baby clearly doesn't know he's an orphan because, you know, and that Trump has this incendiary language on race. So what will the baby think when he's older and he realizes this, even though the baby's father was a Trump supporter? But to be fair to President Trump, but a lot of people still thought it was sort of a sickening photo. What kind of man gives a thumbs up and a big smile to the cameras on an occasion like that? I mean, we're not necessarily, you know, not every president is going to be as empathic or as sensitive or as cool in his own way as Barack Obama was. But very few people would have done what Trump did in that circumstance. Well, you know, all of us in America... (laughs) Well, maybe not all, but certainly all journalists. You know, 20 times a day, we start a sentence like that. What sort of man would do this? You know, he he gets in these Twitter cat fights. I'll use that word because it's about men with other male journalists and things. And he criticizes people's looks and is very petty and their TV ratings. And you're thinking, what kind of man would do this when he's president of the United States. But, you know, in in some ways we're inured because he does it. You know, CNN has been on breaking news for two years now because this happens in cascading horrible events 20 times a day where he says something completely inappropriate. But, you know, he, he is all about his it and his ego, and everything gets filtered through that. So even though no other president would get in petty Twitter fights, or he was comparing his crowd size in El Paso to Beto O'Rourke's in the hospital at the same time he was posing with that baby. And, and so you say, well, what kind of man is thinking about his crowd size when he has people whose lives have been forever ruined by this shooting? But yet, 45% of Americans support him and uh, 45% of the electorate will probably vote for him or more. And that may well be enough to get him uh, re-elected next year. I, I know that not all those people who vote for him vote for him because they think he's the most wonderful person in the world. There are other reasons too. But a lot of people do seem to think he's wonderful. My family are all Trump supporters. And, you know, I think Democrats are deluding themselves if they think that most Republicans are waking up to uh, the horrors of Donald Trump. My family is much more passionate about him now than they were the first time they voted for him. So what, how does this junction arise between what you see in him and what they see in him? And I, accepting the fact that families often disagree about politics, this seems to run a bit deeper than that. Well, let me use the example of my brother, Kevin, Kevin Barry, who, uh, you know, I give him my column once a year to do so that Times readers can get a glimpse of the belly of the beast in the red state. Kevin um, doesn't pay attention to everything Trump does on Twitter or all of his inappropriate things or things that scare other people like his how he deals with foreign leaders. Kevin isn't focused on that. He wanted someone who would make sure there were fewer regulations and would put conservatives on the Supreme Court and cut taxes. And he got all that from Trump. Now, Kevin's a little bit, you know, 
of a different case because Kevin was Brett Kavanaugh's basketball coach at Georgetown Prep. So he loves Trump for uh, choosing and defending Brett Kavanaugh. So he loves him even more. But all the other members of my family, you know, didn't coach Brett Kavanaugh and they think Trump is doing a great job. They just, they're not as attuned as journalists and Democrats and suburban women to all of these uh inappropriate and sometimes grotesque behaviors. Now, you've been inside the Beltway pretty much for your whole life. You're a a Washington insider. How profoundly has American politics changed in the last two or three years? Oh, this is the most uh, incredible thing that's ever happened in politics and Washington. I mean... As I said, CNN has been on breaking news for two years straight. Uh, I can't even describe it. It's We're in a constant state of shock that all of these norms are being broken. And, you know, it, it was impossible to imagine a president, as Trump has done this week, who would go out and trash a predecessor and suggest that he was involved with this pedophile and might have been involved in his, you know, facilitating his suicide, as as Trump did with Bill Clinton this week about Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, you can't wrap your head around it. You have no words to say it. It's thrown journalism into a turmoil. The New York Times had to have a town hall this week because of a headline we wrote that many people at the Times did not think was strong enough against Trump. So the whole society is turned upside down, and and the globe, I would say. What do you make of the Jeffrey Epstein case? It's extraordinary, and it seems to, I mean, there are an awful lot of names being bandied around, and many of them very famous people, many of them right. very powerful people. But what's your take on, on the whole story? What, what was going on over all those years? I think that Jeffrey Epstein is uh, one of the creepiest people that I've ever seen in American history. He obviously had a diary and would download with these young women after they were with celebrities and was keeping track of them. It could be anything. In a way, it's funny because this case has turned us all into conspiracy theorists, even the mayor of New York. You know, how could this have happened that he would have been left alone all these hours in this prison to commit suicide? And, you know, none of us really believe that uh, the federal government is leveling with us on this because it just, it feels like a Netflix movie where there's going to be some other hideous backstory to the hideous story. Did you ever meet him yourself? I didn't, although I helped the Times uh, break the story. I, I have a friend, Jaron Lanier, who is the father of virtual reality, and he told me about all the scientists who used to hang out with Jeffrey Epstein and that Jeffrey Epstein would talk about setting up a DNA ranch in New Mexico where he would spread his seed and have a bunch of children, even though he ended up having no children. So I guess he never did it, but that we know of. But uh, 
and another funny part of that story was uh, Epstein would give grants to scientists, and that's why they hung around with him. And one of the grants he gave to some Nobel Prize winning scientists was to discover a uh, particle in the brain that could tell you when someone is coming up behind you. And even though he gave the grant, they never did discover the particle, but obviously that could have helped Epstein when the FBI was coming up behind him. See, I, mean, I wonder, I mean, I think of, you know, obviously there was a famous Trump quote where he compared himself to Epstein, but said that Epstein, of course, preferred young, you know, much, much younger women. And uh, I was listening to, I think it was a podcast produced by Vox, and they were talking about how this guy managed to glide through the upper echelons of American society uh, with people like Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew around him, with these very young girls draped over his arms, and that nobody really thought it was that unusual, that it says something... It says something about the way in which masculine power was sort of was accepted up until very recently, maybe. Well, as Nancy Pelosi likes to say, follow the money. I mean, when you have a lot of money like that, he drew scientists to him because the money for, uh, you know, scientific uh, grants was shrinking. So when they found this billionaire who wanted to lavish money on them, they were happy. And in the same way, Bill Clinton obviously was always looking for donations and he liked Epstein's private plane. That's how Woody Allen got, you know, he had some money problems with his firm and didn't have his private plane anymore. And Jeffrey Epstein offered it. But look at Bill Cosby. You know, people in America can stay, celebrities and rich people can stay powerful long after there are all these horrible rumors swirling around them. And men can get away. Or certainly... And look at Harvey Weinstein. Indeed. I mean, for, for decades, there were rumors about him settling with the company's money, settling sexual harassment suits. and But until somebody, like in this case, a Florida reporter dug into Epstein and the New York Times and Ronan Farrow dug into Weinstein, you know, they can exist. And in the Weinstein case, also, he was very close to the Clintons because he gave them a lot of money. So money talks, as you know. And how, I do wonder how complicit the Clintons and Bill Clinton in particular, you know, were in all this. Listening to Slow Burn, the Washington Post documentary about uh, about the Monica Lewinsky scandal and uh, the impeachment process. It's very interesting to listen to some of the women who would consider themselves feminists looking back on their approach to that scandal in the 1990s and the way that many of them essentially blamed a young 21-year-old woman as opposed to a powerful 50-year-old politician. Well, I um, I won't say I was the only one because I, I can't say that definitively. It felt like I was the only sort of prominent feminist writer who tried to hold uh, the Clintons accountable on this. I said it was, uh, you know, an, an inappropriate sexual dynamic between Monica and the president because he's supposed to be the father of the country and also the father of his staff. So, uh, you know, it took Monica 20 more years to kind of acknowledge that and come to terms with that. But I also had a hard time with the idea of Hillary Clinton as a feminist icon when she was leading campaigns to demonize women who were telling the truth about sexual encounters with her husband. Now, I did that 20 years ago, and the Clintons 
cut me off. I was never allowed to interview either of them again or have any real contact with their campaigns, but they were still in charge of the Democratic Party for the next 20 years. And my editors would come to me and say, can you do a profile of Hillary? And I would say no, because I took this stand that she shouldn't be demonizing Bill's girlfriends for telling the truth. So, you know, you it, it took literally there there were kids in college by the time other feminists came around to this idea that Hillary shouldn't demonize them. And there's still feminist writers who who think Monica is great and Hillary is great. But at that point, you kind of had to choose one or the other. Do you think a, a contemporary politician would get away with what Bill Clinton got away with? I suppose Donald Trump has probably. Oh, absolutely not. You know, men are walking on eggshells in this society as well. They should. Um, no, absolutely not. And Hillary would not get away with it either. You know, they were hiring private investigators to kind of intimidate women who were telling the truth about their affairs with Bill Clinton. The American public is actually very forgiving. If Bill Clinton had come out and said he did this and it was a mistake, that that he might have you know, gotten past it. But instead, he was polling with Dick Morris about whether he should lie about Monica or asking Dick Morris if he should poll about whether he should tell the truth. And he had his top female cabinet members, these very accomplished women like Madeleine Albright, coming out and lying for him. He was literally hiding behind their skirts and behind Hillary's skirt. And no, you couldn't get away with any of that now. I want to ask you about um, somebody else, uh, somebody who you wrote a very interesting article about just a few weeks ago. You had a meal with Nancy Pelosi and her your conversation with her and the article which you wrote sort of set off a bomb for a couple of weeks in American politics because of comments she made about what we the people who we've learned to call the squad, the, the four freshman congresswomen um, who, who were then attacked by Donald Trump. Right. I, I hate to admit that I... I didn't realize when she said that, that it would be this cascading uh, fight. It was more the subtext of what she said that, that caused the fight. It's actually about very elemental and primary things in our politics. On the surface, it was about a, a border bill, a bill to help, you know, bring more funds to uh people at the border so that we wouldn't have these horrible scenes we're seeing. But uh, the the four, the squad all voted against the Democratic version of that bill. So what Nancy Pelosi was saying is if they're going to abandon Democrats on this bill, then uh, they're just four people with four votes. And, and you know, then AOC, as we call her, uh, suggested that this there was some racial dissing by Nancy Pelosi, which really was unfair. You know, I love AOC's idealism and passion. And often I think the Democrats are too wimpy and she's very fiery and I love her dreams for climate change, but it was wrong to accuse Pelosi of that. But what the underlying story of what was happening is uh, AOC had a chief of staff named Sekhat Chakrabarti, and he was the one who discovered her and recruited her and helped her win her congressional seat. 
and he was using her office to kind of wage war against moderate Democrats and Pelosi and was sending out unprecedented tweets trashing Pelosi and her leadership style and suggesting that moderate Democrats who had voted for this border bill were complicit in racism. Nothing like this had ever happened in Congress, where a staffer was trashing House members as racists, including members of color. So that was the real fight. And when I talked to Pelosi, this had already happened. He had already been sending these tweets. So, you know, she had kind of had it. And this guy has now resigned. So that was really what's happened. I think AOC realized she was a little bit out over her skis on this. You know, Pelosi is has been demonized for decades for her San Francisco liberalism, and AOC never should have been suggesting in any way that she was a racist. Do, do you think Pelosi is right to keep any attempts to impeach Donald Trump at bay uh, until the next election? I agree with her, but, you know, the number of people who want impeachment is creeping up. I mean, uh, you know, people say, oh, we have to hold him accountable. But I I think the Democrats do not have a Barack Obama in the field. They don't have someone who is inspiring excitement and love. And uh, so I think they should be focused on getting rid of Trump in an electoral way. And I don't think they're their purity about doing the right thing should cause them to do the wrong thing. Because the right thing from from their point of view is to get rid of him in a definitive way. And how do they do that? Well, they've got to get a candidate who can inspire loyalty and excitement. I was watching the the first couple of Democratic debates and a lot of people said about Joe Biden afterwards that uh, the, the phrase they used was uh, that he's lost a step. In other words, he well, is... Well, that's the phrase Trump uses. Uh, well, other people use it as well. And yeah. he, he is, you know, um, he's not in the first flush of youth, very, very far from it indeed. He's 76. Nancy Pelosi, who's the most powerful Democrat in the United States at the moment, is 79. Donald Trump is 73. Right. But the, the two runners behind Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders is 77 and Elizabeth Warren is 70. What's with all the old people? I know it's 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 a wild situation. <laughs> it is. I asked Pelosi about this the other day. She says she doesn't mind being asked about her age, but it has to be not only women. You know, you have to ask Mitch McConnell too, who's also older. But uh, Trump is trying to do with Biden what he did to Hillary when Hillary got pneumonia and got sick. He was suggesting that she was her health was terrible. And in this case, he's using some gaffes that Biden has made recently to suggest that, as Trump put it, he's not playing with a full deck. Um, you know, it's interesting because I thought Biden Biden is known for his gaffes, and I thought they would seem like nothing compared to Trump's gaffes. But uh, Trump is so brutal, and he has this bad sonar for going after weaknesses. And uh, so he is linking up the gaffes to Biden's age. And, um, you know, even Democrats now are kind of wondering, is this going to be a problem? If Biden slips up, 
because he is the front runner. He's a comfortable front runner at the moment. But we know the way these things work. We've seen it in previous primary elections where the favourite never made it in the end. If 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 Biden slips up, who's the best hope for the Democrats? I don't know. Everyone else thinks the Democrats have too many candidates. I don't think they have enough. Uh, I, uh, you know, Pelosi is worried that if Warren and Sanders are in the lead, the mainstream Democrats in the middle of the country are going to get turned off and not vote Democratic. So that's why she's trying, this is the irony of this incredible liberal trying to steer the Democratic ship in a middle lane, because when they get up at the debate, they say maybe we should, All some of the more progressive candidates say maybe we should, uh, you know, give uh, people who cross the border illegally free health care and maybe we should make it a civil offense and let's have free college. And, you know, Pelosi is kind of like we can't be so far left that we turn off the moderate wing of the party. And she's trying to protect all these moderate Democrats who won seats in Trump country. So that's the tension there with her. But there's also the difficulty, isn't there, that in the American system, you've got to win the primaries first. And to win the primaries, you've got to appeal the base to the base of your party, whichever party you're in. So you've got to tack to the left a bit if you're a Democrat, tack to the right a bit if you're a Republican. Then as soon as you get the nomination, you've got to head for the centre as fast as you can. Yeah, it's a, it's a screwed up system. And, uh, and also the electoral college. So we end up sometimes with leaders, and it isn't only America, this is true in Australia right now, we end up with leaders who don't really represent the majority opinion. The majority of Americans want gun control, you know, so, and the majority of Americans don't want to see children in cages. So somehow, because of our system, we end up with these leaders who aren't really representing the will of the people. And then even more deeply than that, um, and maybe finally, if you wouldn't mind, I, I look at I, I look back to Donald Trump's terrifying inauguration speech when he spoke about American carnage and about the devastation across the country. And lots of people said, um, that's a very bleak vision. That America isn't as bad as that. But America is, is in a terrible condition. It's the the gun violence, the fact that all the infrastructure is crumbling. I was just reading today about how all the tunnels into New York City were all built 100 years ago. Why has nobody built well, any you, tunnels you in the last 20 would, years? Right. You, you'd think that would be the least a builder could do, focus on infrastructure, right? You would. Uh, it was funny. I was interviewing Tom Hanks, and, and a lot of people in Hollywood think he should run. And I said, if you were running for president, what is the first thing you would do? And he replied, infrastructure. So even Tom Hanks <laughs> knows that we are in a dire situation here. I think the... Uh, the overall debate here is, is Trump an aberration? And then we're going to go back and be more normal and get our priorities straight and get our American identity and our values back to what they once were? Or is he the beginning of this kind of what Marianne Williamson refers to as this dark psychic force that is leading us into this dystopia. And if he has four more years, is this not an aberration? Uh, so I think that is, you know, the underlying kind of tension about Donald Trump. 
I mean, there must be young politicians and dark forces of various sorts out there who are looking at this and learning lessons for how you can gain power in America and perhaps gain power and be a lot more effective about using it than Trump has been so far. Well, exactly. But it's it's in all areas of American life, you know, that we have gotten used to this. Uh, it's worse than incivility, this kind of... Uh, uh, horrible day-to-day discourse that's ugly and racist. And, you know, it's also journalism. Journalists are are in a strange position. Donald Trump often says the journalists want me to be reelected because uh, they're making so much money from me because we get a lot of digital subscriptions and cable news does really well. And so, you know, again, with his bat sonar, he's putting his finger on something. It's not that journalists want him to be reelected, but they do thrive. You know, I often say, Alfred Hitchcock used to say, the secret to a great movie is a great villain. Trump is our villain and we are his. And that is causing journalism to have a lot of money at the moment. Yeah, just listening to you there, just to go back to at the very start again and to Barack Obama, I was uh, totally wrongly of the view way back in early 2008 that the United States was not ready to elect uh, a black president. And obviously I was totally wrong about that. And you were speaking earlier about the great sense of elation and idealism that accompanied his election. And of course, as with any politician over the course of his term of office, you know, there was disillusionment, some people got cynical. That's the reality, the reality of politics. But Trump is the mirror image of Obama, isn't he? Trump is a backlash to America's first black president. David Axelrod, who who was uh, Obama's uh, Pygmalion, he helped create him and he, very smart guy. And he always says that in politics, you want the opposite of, of what you just had. So he said Obama was very sophisticated and nuanced and gray. And, you know, he was good in the gray areas, like it it might be this or it might be that. And so people were drawn to that after W and Cheney because they were, you know, heedless cowboys who went into Iraq with no evidence. And so they were drawn to Obama Obama's nuance. But then after eight years, they got impatient with the nuance and they wanted more visceral black and white. So then they went back to Trump. And as you say, there was a lot of racism that got stirred up. And also President Obama, you know, uh, has to accept some responsibility too, because I think people voted for him because they wanted radical change. And then he thought he was so much of a change that he should tamp down everything else. And so I, I think there was still this underlying hunger for change that he did not satisfy. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the American future? Uh, I, you know, my dad immigrated from Ireland and came through uh, the Statue of Liberty. And I just think the Statue of Liberty is weeping. Right. On that sad note, we will leave it there. Maureen, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thanks to you.
And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and all the usual places. And if you can give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, that would also be great. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com. You can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.